Blog Talk Radio. Africa, and right now we're going to bring in and welcome 
Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, we'd like to welcome you to Africa on the Moon. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, uh, the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Finally, Brother Anthony, we now will bring in Brother Haki. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamatra Mishoki. Colonel with African Awareness, and my thing is all, you know, institution building. But, you know, the thing about institutions, one of the things, you know, that got me got me thinking, often people talk about the fact that, you know, one of the ways in terms of changing the system is to work within the system. And it got me thinking that a couple of cases particularly which stand out in terms of people working within the system and not working out for them. The first case was the case of Jeffrey Sterling. Now, Jeffrey Sterling was a CIA agent who spent 10 years with the, with the CIA. Now, he filed a complaint against the agency because, according to superiors, they had a problem in terms of sending a black man to, to, to Iran simply because he's black. But they didn't, have a, they didn't have a problem sending a white man to Iran, even though he's white. So the notion that somehow the black man would stand out, and, and, but the white man wouldn't in Iran was ironic. In particular, given the fact that uh, the man has a law degree, so he's, he's an intelligent fellow. And interesting enough, ultimately, uh, um, Alton Sterling was convicted. He was convicted under circumstantial information. Allegedly, there was a book written by James Rise in the New York Times um, entitled State of War, in which uh, information was contained in it, which they attributed to uh, Jeffrey Sterling. Even though they had no first-hand knowledge Jeffrey Sterling actually did that, they convicted him on circumstantial uh, evidence. In fact, the, the judge's position was that, quote, circumstantial information has to be enough. To convict, so that was very ironic in terms of the standards standards of justice employed against this this this, this, this black man, uh, you know, who was part of the CIA, who dedicated his life to the preservation of the same system that ultimately vilified him. The second case is the case of Terry Albury. Now, Terry Albury was a FBI agent of 11 years out of Minnesota. Now, he was discontented with the systematic racism he observed over 11 years in the FBI. He wrote to the, uh, the magazine called The Intercept. And he talked about, in terms of the the, um, the 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 philosophy behind targeting, you know, people of color, you know, for terrorism, even though it was clear that most terrorism was committed by white supremacists. So he re- he wrote this article, and uh, as a result, they charged him with leaking classified information. Now, the real the real reality was that it has nothing to do in terms of leaking classified information. It's more of the embarrassment exposed to the FBI for the level of corruption or level of racism that exists in the FBI. And he, as a result of that, he got four years in prison. Now, now the, the question that arises, Brother Africa, is that, you know, if the system itself is antagonistic to African people, can, can reform be possible? It seems to me institutions in the community that clarify obstacles is needed if empowerment is to be achieved. Now, at what point does it become clear empowerment has to be earned, no one gives it to you? So in that context, it seems to me that we need institutions to reinforce the importance in terms of self-determination, actually stand up working together to achieve empowerment. Otherwise, it's not going to come through in terms of appeasement by working inside these systems, which are totally in opposition to any kind of change. So I think we need institutions, and I 
definitely advocate people getting busy building institutions. Okay, Father and Brother Haki, we bring in now Brother Jabari. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you. It's always an honor and a privilege to be a part of the program, resident research here, looking forward to another insightful program tonight. Peace. All right, all right, panelists. Let's start out with our first segment on what's going on in your world and the community. We start out with you, Brother Anthony. What you have for us today? Okay, um, a couple of things. Uh, coming up on October 26, uh, 2019, there's a Freedom Dance commemorating the 40th anniversary of Asada Shakur's uh, liberation uh, from prison. And um, the, the, it'll be the 40th anniversary. It'll take place at the National Black Theater in Harlem, New York, uh, from 8 p.m. to 1 a.m., $20 donation. And that's uh, on the 26th. And also, uh, in relation, in indirect relationship to that, uh, the, uh, let's see, um, uh, the orange one is intensifying uh, the blockade against Cuba out of frustration for uh, for its inability to topple the, the the government of Venezuela, and uh, as a result, uh, Cuba is severe, experiencing severe shortages of uh, fuel uh, across the board, and it's and it's made things very difficult for the Cuban people. In addition to that. Uh, there, there very, there are already uh, some lawsuits in the U.S. courts suing Cuba uh, for the nationalization of, um, you know, of uh, the the facilities that were run by the capitalists before the uh, uh, the revolution uh, 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 came to power. Okay. Thank you, Brother Anthony. We'll come back to some of those issues that you just raised, and we now will go to Brother Haki. What's going on in your world in the community? Well, we've got a few things here. First, uh, African Awareness will be doing a solidarity tour to Cuba. This trip takes place October 31st to November 6th. For more information, give us a call, 804-549-7492 or area code 202-714-714. 9435, or email us at African Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. And the second thing is the uh, first annual Pan African International Festival taking place in Richmond, Virginia. This will take place Sunday, October 27th. Uh, for more information, you can just give us a call at 804 549 and of course, you can email us at African Awareness Association number two at gmail dot com. Now, the, the the thing I want to talk about briefly, Brother Africa, is this question around you know uh, you know poverty in, in in American society. Often, people don't understand that poverty is a function of uh, political necessity, particularly when we talk about transferring the wealth from the very from the very poor to the very very wealthy. In any event, I read this article right, and it talks about poverty in America has been always been understated. And the reason very, you know, but one constant variable has been the systematic transfer of wealth 
from the poor to the wealthy. The latest exception employed by the White House Office of Management and Budget under the auspices of Agent Orange is the utilization of the ch- chain CPI. The strategy is nothing new and, in fact, was used by former President uh, Bill Clinton to understate inflation. The role of the C- ch- ch- consumer price index chain is to measure inflation. This is important because inflation is tied to public services. For example, if the CPI chain understates inflation, it makes the case poverty does not exist in America. Therefore, if poverty doesn't exist, <coughs> based upon U.S. government statistics, people can afford food, despite the fact that prices of food rises every day and the need for food stamps no longer exists. Now, this change, the CPI chain, affords government the luxury of cutting $1 trillion for Medicaid and food stamps for the most vulnerable, the most poor, and the most sick people in society. Interesting enough, the value of the dollar or lack of value of the dollar is downplayed and employment numbers are provided that do not reflect real unemployment rates in the United States. By creating a narrative which says economic instability does not exist in the U.S., the narrative is is maintained where the systematic pillaging of wealth, the wealth, excuse me, by the wealthy uh, continues, and the impoverishment of the poor exponentially increases. Now, according to the tenets of capitalism, we got to ask ourselves this question: Is the working class or poor have a right to exist? We have to ask that question because that's going to determine whether or not we stand up for uh, self-determination or not. But we have to ask ourselves the question: Do we have an inherent right to exist? All right, thank you, Brother Hackey. We'll come back with some of your interesting articles or ideas on this segment. Next, we'll go to Brother Bobby. What's going on in your world community, Brother Bobby? Well, there's a couple of things um, <clears throat> that are worth highlighting. One is a concern in regards to Richmond Public Schools um, graduation rates. I was recently reading an article by in a local Richmond newspaper, the Richmond Free Press, and it was detailing how there's a report that um, states that Richmond now has the lowest graduation rate of anywhere in Virginia. Now, this is particularly alarming given the makeup of Richmond Public Schools being majority of um, African students. And also, it's, when you look at some of the numbers, it speaks to a big issue in the statewide in terms of Roughly around 8.5% of students not graduating. So you're talking about nearly 10% of students are not graduating. In certain locales, they only graduate 75% of their students, meaning that a quarter of them just fall through the cracks and um, don't necessarily even get the bare minimum. So the question is, what are those kind of policies that are in place that are creating these kind of conditions? Because if you know anything about Richmond school system, it was just recently announced a few months ago about how schools weren't necessarily even following all proper protocols to ensure students were graduating properly. So you will see schools that will have several students who start they would graduate only to find out at the last possible second that they may have been a class short or they didn't do everything as the curriculum required. So when you look at this kind of institutional dysfunction, it just makes you wonder what's going on in Richmond in terms of what is the end game that's going to come about that they're going to say it's going to be the remedy to what's going on. Okay. Interesting point. Interesting point. Uh, oh, and go you mind if I had one more? You mind? I got one more one there. Mm-hmm. State of California dealing with wildfires yet again. So, therefore, there's a new wrinkle with this set of wildfires as 
Um, one of the major utility providers has said that it needs to cut off electricity because the wildfires could potentially burn the power line. Now, this is particularly interesting as if you look at the U.S.'s energy policy, they rely on that which is not non-renewable and much safer because the problem is with these non-renewable resources, not only will they run out over time, but if you're talking about how flammable they are, you're talking about look at the situation they're in now in terms of that because there are other means of trying to produce electricity other than the ones that are more riskier, but nonetheless we know that it's all about profit because if you try to do that which will prolong and be best for the people, unfortunately, as um, that statistics will show, utility companies will charge more for those clean energy sources than those that um, cause pollution and a myriad of other health issues. So we just, I just want to lift up the variety of issues when you look at that kind of scenario existing in California as well. Okay, thank you, Jabari. Next we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your community in the world? Oh, thank you. Um, my phone has been going in and out, so I don't know. Um, I um, have been a pretty slow week for me. Uh, 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 the presidential politics and stuff has been uh, on my mind as, as much as anything. Uh, uh, the fact that he's so arrogant and uh, and just outright belligerent. And and and, uh, and he's he, he seems to have no 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 end to what he what he'll do. Uh, uh, and uh, I hope that he gets in peace at this point. I, I definitely hope that he gets in peace. Uh, that's been the main thing on my mind this week. Uh, thank you. Um, thank you, Brother Moses. At this point in time, I'm Brother Africa. You listen to Africa on the Move. We're discussing what's going on in your world community. We encourage you to call in at 323-679-0841. If you have anything to share or would like to respond to some of the things that has been things that have been raised in this context of what's going on in our panelist analyst world community. What we're gonna do right now, we're gonna pause for the cause when we come back, we can discuss some of these things in further detail that has been stated. And we welcome you to call in when we come back from the station break. You are listening to Africa on the Move. You have the emergence in human society of this thing that's called the state. What is the state? The state is an organized bureaucracy. It is the police department. It is the army, the navy. It is the prison system, the courts, and what have you. This is the state. It is a repressive organization. But the state... And you, well, you know, you've got to have the police, because if there were no police, look at what you'd be doing to yourselves. You'd be killing each other if there were no police. But the reality is, the police become necessary in human society. You know how we think, organize the hood under our chain banners. Red, black, and green instead of gang bandanas. FBI spying on us through the radio antennas. And I'm hitting cameras in the street like watching society. 
with no respect for the people's right to privacy. I take a slug for the cause like Huey P. While all you fake niggas try to copy Master P. I want to be free to live, able to have what I need to live. Bring the power back to the street where the people live. We sick of working for crumbs and filling up the prisons. Dying over money and relying on religion for help. We do for self like ants in a colony. Organize the wealth into a socialist economy. A way of life based off the common needs. And all my comrades is ready, we just spreading the seed. Political monsters, no more secret space launches. Government departments started it in the projects. Material objects, thousands up in the closets. Could have been invested in the future for my comrades. Battle contacts, primitive weapons out in combat. Many never come back. Pretty niggas be running with gas. Rather get shot in their back than fire back. We're tired of that. Corporations hiring black. Denying the facts, exploiting us all over the map That's why I write the shit I write in my rap It's documented, I meant it Every day of the week, I live in it, breathing it It's more than just fucking believing it I'm holding in one, rolling up my sleeves and shit It's C-Lo for push-ups now, many headed for one conclusion Niggas ain't ready for revolution You're having blackmail, live a third of his life in a jail cell Cause the world is controlled by the white male And the people don't never get justice and the women don't never get respected And the problems don't never get solved And the jobs don't never pay enough So the rent always be late Can you relate? We living in a police state against U.S. imperialism. And, uh, and in order to build socialism, you have to, um, you know, help other people that are trying to defeat a common enemy. And uh, here, and historically, imperialism has shown itself to be an enemy of the Cuban people. 
And the Cuban people understand this. And so they've always historically offered solidarity and a helping hand to those Africans that were also struggling against imperialism. And uh, Asada Shakur is an example of that. And uh, and they and they continue to that. That's one of the reasons why Cuba is so hated by the U.S. government because of its stand and its stand on behalf of African and other oppressed people around the world. Other panelists like to respond to that. Yeah, well, you know, you know, the thing is that you know we have to keep in, in, in historical perspective. You know, Asada Shakur represents the heart and soul of the Black Liberation Movement, and so therefore, you know, what she stands for is much bigger than Asada Shakur herself. Cuba understands in terms of the role, in terms of fighting against injustice, uh, is a principal stand in terms of you know uh, humanity, you know, over profits, is well understood in the context of historical struggles. So therefore, Cuba has a took a principal stand that to protect Saudi Shakur is tantamount to you protecting African people in America's right to stand up against tyranny. So clearly, you know, Cuba's river principle and your brother absolutely correct that Cuba's well loved out the world simply because it's a principal stand. Um, this notion that the humanity is so much more important than the bottom line, than the balance sheet, is something that a lot of countries around the world have a very difficult time understanding. Cuba understands fully that the right of human beings supersedes any kind of profit motive. And so, therefore, as long as they have that, that principal understanding of humanity, then they see the obligation in terms of protecting those like Asada Shakur who stand up and fight against injustice. And so Asada Shakur's um, presence, presence in Cuba is, is simply emblematic of, you know, of, a, of a state which you know, values that which is right over that which is wrong. Anyone else I could stick a stab at it? Brother Moses, well, Brother Jabari. Yes, go ahead, Brother Hello. Moses. Yes, go no, ahead. I think um, Cuba, Cuba understands that they have to keep politics in command of economics, and otherwise, you know, they become chasing the almighty dollar or, the, or whatever. Uh, and... So they put the people's struggles for liberation and uh, freedom above above uh, all the other uh, issues of, of the day, and uh, and so that's why there's such solidarity with the liberation movement here in the U.S. and and uh, and it's an anti-imperialist stance that you know at the Marxist Leninist government uh they they uh they understand their internationalist duties. Thank you. Uh, okay. Also Brother Anthony you raised the issue of the intensification of the blockade. And notice we said the blockade, we didn't say the embargo. Because normally when you talk about a embargo, you're talking about maybe a one to one relationship. One country trying to deny another country, but in this case, U.S. has the power to influence and prevent other countries from doing trade with Cuba. Now, in terms of this intensification of blockade, its impact on the shortage of energy. One of the things I also realize in terms of not only do they have the power to stop other countries from trading with Cuba, 
and bringing resources inside, but also understand, Anthony, they have a blockade against Venezuela ships that are blocking them from going to Cuba to deliver oil. So, in terms of that regards, you know, one of the things I like to read in the context of this discussion is as American citizens continue to live here and continue to be ignorant of what the government, what this government is doing in their name, does that relieve them of any responsibility of the harm and the damages that they are causing people, not only in Cuba but around the world, as it relates to these kind of foreign policies and tactics? It doesn't relieve them, but, um, you know, from what I read, the Cuban understand that the people in the U.S. are not uh, are not the enemy, are not the primary enemy. It is, it, 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 you know, it is the U.S. government. And, but to the extent that people remain ignorant, of uh, U.S. government policies around the world, they are culpable. And uh, so, uh, but uh, I think I think they do res- uh, they do be- they do bear some responsibilities be- because they're the ones that that perpetuate under under the control of the ideological of the ruling class. Uh, the the foreign policy of the U.S. government. They help perpetuate it by providing the labor for its military and the um, and the uh, intelligentsia that perpetuate these uh, bourgeois ideas. But uh, but I think uh, but but you know some people that have an understanding of U.S. policy. Can distinguish between people and, and and the government that that allegedly represents them. Yeah, you know, you know, but yeah, but you know, the, the, problem, the, problem, the, the problem is this: if in fact the U.S. tells the world that America is a democracy, and for people who actually believe America is a democracy, then essentially what they're saying is that whatever the government does in your name is because you give uh, uh, approval to, to those actions. So that is a problem. You're absolutely correct, Brother Anthony. You know, for those individuals around the world who are politically savvy, they understand that it's not the American people who are innovating or carrying out, you know, these policies, but it's a government. It's a cobal. It's a cobal of, uh, you know, very ruthless individuals who are actually responsible for for foreign policy. But those people who have that understanding are few and far between around the world. So we have a small minority of people around the world who understand the nature of the, the nature of the beast. We have a large segment of people, just like in America, who are totally unaware, you know, in terms of the reality, in terms of America not being a democracy and as such. See, all people in America as part and parcel of the problem. So this is the fundamental problem that we're confronted with. So I, I don't think we, 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 we can simply, you know, cavalierly, you know, just dismiss, you know, that correlation between what the government does in our name and people's perception of us or those of us who are born in America. So that, that, is, that is my view. What I would like to say in terms of this blockade aspect as well is that, you know, they use every tool accessible to them to try to punish companies 
and countries who do not operate according to their lackings. When we look at Cuba, they also have intensified all the various uh, financial institutions, banks, etc., that normally facilitate transfers of money and payments. They are using those institutions well to cut off Cuba from the rest of the world in order to conduct business. Now, in terms of using banks as a means to um, further create chaos and, and, and wreck habit within your particular society, how do we see the role of banks inside the U.S. in terms of how we as a people maybe could play a role to um, play a role in terms of um, addressing the issue? Because clearly, all the ignorance, we also are being subsidized. The standing living are being subsidized through this form of oppression, through this form of economic warfare. Um, so your response to that issue? Uh the U.S. right now is in in the present phase is dominated by dominated by finance capital, which means the banks really are the are the ruling force in this society, and they dictate everything. They 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 really dictate what U.S. policy is, both internally and internationally. And uh, and uh, the the uh, the people can put a stop to it, but people have to be organized. And uh, and uh, has been pointed out numerous times historically, our the the biggest impediment we have is our lack of organ of permanent political organization, and uh, we have to be independent. Of the duopoly, which is what a lot of uh, you know African leadership advocates that we remain dependent upon, but that's not going to solve our problem. It's going to take a lot of work, but we have to get uh, uh, our own independent political organizations, and uh, we have to exert pressure on the banks. And uh, and the only pressure that uh, uh, that a corporate end, uh, 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 understands is uh, when you stop doing business with them. But in order to use that as a, as a weapon, we have to be organized. I think I, I think one of the things in terms when we talk about the, the bank's involvement in terms of the. Uh, these criminal policies around the world. I think one of the things to understand that given these the, the swift banking order, the system in which the US established in terms of making sure that countries go through that system in terms of processing, you know, their, their payments. Uh to that extent, you know, all countries are some ex- to, to to some extent uh handicapped, you know, by such a system. But what's happening increasingly more and more countries, uh vis a vis China, Russia, Venezuela and, and as well as Cuba, begin to understand that the the solution to that problem is to no longer participate in that in that SWIFT system, and so which means that they they create convenient ways to trade in their own currency, uh, you know, um, creating ways in which you use um, you know um, um, other 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 means in terms of exchange in terms of facilitating you know trade. So I think that once you once you leave that system. 
And what happens is that the the banks become a liability to 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 the um, to the U.S. Because one of the things we talk about currency exchange, you talk about the need in terms of, you know, when you talk about uh, brother Africa, we talk about the fact that the the the, the governments around the world effectively uh, um, the exit. Um, damn, it's a long day. <laughs> the banks around the world effectively um, subsidize uh, the U.S. economy. You're absolutely correct. But what happens is that when these countries around the world decided that we no longer participate in the system that's established by the U.S., it means that the, the ability in terms of the United States, you know, to use the dollar as a reserve currency uh, to subsidize the economy becomes, becomes, becomes a real problem for the United States. And so, therefore, Cuba understands that solution, the long-term solution to its problems means that it has to operate outside of that system that currently established by the United States. So I don't think the, 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 in terms of the, the power of the, um, of the banks, as is pronounced, as, uh, as we would like to believe, that I think, in fact, that the power of the banks is actually waning. So I think they don't want us to know that. But clearly, when we talk about countries around the world actually you know, trading in their dollar reserves because they don't want them anymore, is, it, it creates a fundamental uh, economic imbalance you know, for the United States in terms of currency, in terms of currency exchange. Because from that currency, they get you accrue interest, you accrue a lot of things, uh, not just power for power's sake. You, curate, you, 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 you create a lot of uh, incentives in terms of U.S. government, you know, to simply do what it wants to do without fear in terms of, you know, economic hardship. Now that people are getting rid of that dollar, uh, and that's one of the, keep in mind, that's one of the things that Muammar Gaddafi of Libya proposed when he talked about creating a bank of, United Bank of Africa in terms of just getting rid of the dollar and creating Africa's own currency. Keep in mind that it, it, it does create a certain amount of instability for the U.S. government when you know, the banks no longer have the kind of power they once historically had. So I think Cuba understands the nature, so I think Cuba's making a move in terms of getting, getting out of that system, and um, so uh, it, which means that um, the, the, uh, the, the bankruptcy, or as it impacts the United States government, is going to actually increase. So I don't think the United States banking system has the kind of power that historically it always had. Yeah, thank you, Brother Haki, and the point you raised about many countries trying to find another alternative or, using, or not using the tools that have been developed by the West can be viewed or, or, or can be seen through the development of, of formations of nations like the BRIC and, for, and the ALBA nations. I think that seems to be a path in which they are trying to attempt to just those things that you just stated. But... Um, Job well done. Now, but in terms of how can you raise the issue about poverty in the United States? Now, when you were speaking about poverty in the United States, one of the things that came to my mind was that there's an old saying that figures don't lie, but lies do figure. And these days become very difficult to believe anything that the government print. Now, we know that, you know, they can, we can have a poverty rate of 70%, and they would tell you we have none at all. Or they can't adjust numbers to make it reflect, make it make them reflect what they want you to think things are. Now, how do we really measure property in this country, in terms of when we talk about the impact of our communities and other underserved communities? Because I don't see them being real truthful, truthful when it comes to that kind of information, because they have a status to uphold as if they are a just country and they take care of their people and everything's fine here. How do we really measure and find the truth of this whole question of the real reality of property inside the United States and its impact on our various underserved communities? 
Well, one of the things you're absolutely correct, Brother Africa. There, there's there's a disincentive in terms of actually measuring real poverty. They can't. They can't measure poverty. One of the things you have to do, you have to. They have to. Ruling class have to perpetuate this myth. This myth that everything is fine. That if in fact people want to find employment in America, it's certainly this is possible. We understand in terms just in terms of numbers, in terms of how employment figures are put together. Clearly, there are, you know you have three measurements in terms of use and a couple of measurements they use in terms of. At, you know, defining you know what is unemployment in the United States, U uh, three and I think the other one was U U three and uh, and U and U U one and U three. Now the whole point is that when you talk about measurement of unemployment in the United States, what they're essentially what they're talking about is they're talking about you know uh, measure, employment exists to the point to the extent that that it doesn't impede profits. So, therefore, in that context, they got an incentive in terms of undermining the number of people who are actually unemployed because they know, realize if it's based upon a number of profitability, then you understand in order for this company, to, a, company A to be profitable, then they need X number of people to be unemployed. But if you talk to the rally in terms of how that works, then people begin to understand that this system is designed to make sure that a certain number of people could never seek have employment in society. And so, therefore, they have a vested interest in making damn sure that people don't understand the nature in terms of true employment. So they'll tell you unemployment is like 3.8%, like 3.8%, and it's the lowest it's been in 10 years. Well, that unemployment that they talk about has, doesn't have a damn thing to do with in terms of people who are no longer looking for work, uh, people who do seasonal work, uh, people who work one hour a week, uh, people, who, uh, uh, people who are in prison. It doesn't count any of those individuals. None of them get counted. So as a, as a, as a recourse, it creates, gives you this number in terms of unemployment, which has nothing to do in terms of reality. And earlier, you know, Brother Africa, I talked about the Consumer Price Index, the CBI chain. And one of the things when we talk about the role of inflation, and one of the things you got to understand, that why it's so important in terms of, you know, understating inflation. Why it's important for a lot of reasons. One of the things that, that you know, if, you, if it's convenient in terms of, you know, uh, sort of uh, disguising the reality that uh, the wealth in this society is fundamentally being taken from the poorest people in society and given to the wealthiest people in society. Well, how do you do that? Well, the only way you can do that is to convince people that everything is fine. So if you, if you, if you change the CPI chain numbers to reflect the pricing, price of food, that it will say that food is affordable, that everybody can afford food, no matter, no matter if they're making only $7.25 an hour, they still can afford food because food is that cheap. If you, make that, if you create that perception, then they can go about the business in terms of systematically, you know, robbing poor people, taking the wealth from poor people and giving it to the wealthy, because people don't understand that the numbers that they provide in terms of inflation has nothing to do with the reality of what's happening in terms of the real prices of food. One of the things, you know, uh, in, in the last four months, you know, the price of food has jumped $1.3 trillion, right? So that's, that's in a direct result of the tariff that uh, the orange menace has been imposed on many countries around the world. Of course, if you were to talk about in terms of the impact in terms of those those policies in terms of the the the, 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 the rising inflation in society, it would expose the whole game. So why would they expose the whole game? They're not going to expose the whole game. They give us these arbitrary numbers and tell us believe this is the truth, and then they operate from there. What is important that people who are fundamentally impacted by unemployment or homelessness or lack of food, they know what the reality is. They know precisely what the reality is. In fact, one of the things that you, they talk about the fact that, um, and this is going statistics, they talk about 80% of the people in America live paycheck to paycheck. So people exist in very precarious in the society, and they understand that. They understand if, if they lose their job, then their ability to eat, their ability to, to maintain shelter, all of that stuff is in jeopardy, and they understand that. The system understands that, too. 
which is why they have to invest in this narrative and say that everything is fine. So it's incumbent upon us, the people, to understand how this works. And so they give us these arbitrary numbers in terms of unemployment or inflation or whatever that we understand that that's a much that's much different reality behind it all, but we have to do some research in terms of understanding precisely what they're doing. So to answer your question, Brother Africa, when you want a, a true assessment in terms of what's going on, it would be very difficult to do because when they say the unemployment rate officially is 3.8%, there are those economies that take position that unemployment rate is in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the range of 26, 26%. That sounds more reasonable in terms of in terms of unemployment numbers, but the, the government would never acknowledge that that many people are unemployed in society. They can't because they have a vested interest in maintaining the fallacy that everything is fine and that everybody in America who wants to work can work. So, to answer your question, Brother Africa, I, I, there is to, to assess the honest number. Uh, that was something you had to do on your own. That's the only way you can assess the honest number, and um, and that's going to be very difficult. Because a lot of times the research that you need in terms of, you know, establishing a particular number in terms of unemployment, uh, you may not have access to those numbers. So it would be sort of difficult to do. But clearly, the numbers coming from the, from the government are never true, and they're not designed to be true. It's all part of the political ploy. And Brother Jabari, you spoke about uh, lack of graduation rate in the Richmond Public Schools increase to 10%. I believe this past year. Now, I'd like for you to think about the possibility in terms of when we're talking about numbers, as I said earlier, there's a saying that figures don't lie, but lies to figure. And you are correct in terms of in other areas, in county school, other areas, rural areas, they have a higher uh, lack of participation rate or graduation rate than 10%. But for some reason or another, they highlight the city of Richmond. Now, Brother Africa. My, um, yes, go ahead. The 10% was statewide. That's when you take into factor all of the locales okay. in terms of edu- public education in Virginia. It's close to, it's roughly 8.5%. Okay, that make it even more pertinent what I want to raise with you. In terms of looking at the statewide um, dropout rate or not, or seeming like graduating, for some schools, do you think there may be a plot or use that as a justification to close these schools down for privatization? It's another you know, attempt to further start privatizing these public schools so they can make money off it? You know, it's very interesting you mention that because um, in regards to what you suggest, a good model to look at would be Chicago. As Chicago deal with a myriad of issues, um, Rahm Emanuel, who was a top Obama aide, that's one thing that he did in terms of being able to present that kind of model. He came in and corporatized Chicago's um, public school system. And ever since then, there have been a number of struggles because of that in terms of the kind of policies that he's advocating in terms of him being so in favor of a capitalist school model. So you got to understand that, especially in Big City, they're using that as a model that would trickle down into other locales to prevent to present this kind of phenomenon, unfortunately. So it definitely is in the works in terms of knowing that then you have the so-called quasi-public schools as well, that one of those does exist in Richmond where it's supposed to be semi-charter, semi-public, but ultimately we know what that's about because they're going to filter in particularly who goes to that particular school in terms of we look at the resources and the facilities and the things they could provide for students. And also, panelists, there could also be another 
factor to this in terms of the less function the schools are, the greater increase you will have in terms of building the population in, inside prisons. There's a high likely, likely chance that many students who are not graduating in these high schools will end up in, in these prisons. You have a response to that theoretical and really practical realities that seem to be going on at this time is that low graduation rates, lack of literacy, not being able to read and function, equates to a higher rate of incarceration by design. Uh, that is by design because um, because in order to get to get uh, to get a job, you have to be not only literate but computer literate. So if you have trouble, uh, you know, functioning in school, and you end up dropping out, and you don't have any do- uh, any documentation that you have the skills necessary to perform a job. You're going to have a hard time getting employment, and therefore you have to resort to other means of trying to survive. And so that's how, in in effect, uh, you know, uh, you know, low graduation rates correspond to an increase in imprisonment uh, because the other things to resort to. Put people resort to in order to sustain themselves can la- uh, can often land you in prison. And also, I think one of the things, as far as the system is concerned, you have this large number of people, kids who young young people drop out of high school. It, it makes the system look good. So when you talk about unemployment, they can simply allude to the fact that the reason why people don't have jobs because they didn't finish high school. So they had a vested interest in making sure, being very quite happy in terms of uh, you know large number of children dropping out of high school. Uh, they have no that's no real uh, incentive in terms of trying to make sure they get through high school. Uh, so I think it's a ruthless it's a very a very ruthless game that they play in terms of you know again statistically they use in terms of justifying all kind of oppression of people. So it seems, but I, I, but now it's, in saying that, brother Africa, I have to point out, you know, one of the things that there is coming upon the community in terms of innovating ways, in terms of making sure that we empower our children, make sure they understand the 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 the, 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 um, the, the usefulness of you know completing high school. So I'm so I don't want to negate the, our responsibility as a community in terms of making sure that our children understand that message that we expect them to finish at a very minimum, we expect them, you know, to finish high school at a very minimum. So I, I don't want to downplay that point, but it, but it does make it easier for those musicians of power uh, to tell the world the reason why America has so many unemployed is because the the youth drop out of school. So it's, it's for them, it's a convenient excuse. excuse. And this question of renewable energy, looking at what's happening in California around these fires that cannot have to cut out the power, so it will not further damage other communities. Now the question becomes, there's no incentive to use renewable resources right now because they are making so much money in the area of oil and gas. So what do y'all make of this whole question of um, given what's going on in California? Is there a lesson to learn that there should be a greater push and a greater need to start looking at other alternatives where these communities won't be as impacted impactful 
when it comes to having these kind of fires? Yeah, well, I think I, I think I think the you know I think the problem is, you know, aside from the question in terms of so much money being made by these you know these uh, by oil and gas, uh, we, systematically what's happening is the most the most powerful corporations, most powerful individuals in the society, are uh, propping up you know individuals to come in and give the pseudoscience in terms around the, the global temperature changes, and so despite the kind of temperature changes that wrecking havoc on the environment. Uh, they're able to, to to gain some traction, particularly when you talk about their role, the role the media plays in terms of highlighting certain voices at the expense of others. And so, therefore, those individuals, you know, who who deny climate change, um, make it possible for for many many people to to not to see the necessity in terms of changing the term, changing, you know, how uh, the, the the role of the gas and, and oil play in terms of undermining the longevity of the planet. So I think it's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, it seems, on, on, on in terms of on a common sense level, that it seems to me that people would put two plus two together, but it's but it's not so simplistic for a lot of people for some reason. Uh, so so I I, I I think that you know un, until we have a, enough of a pushback, uh, enough organization, in which people who are espousing the uh, the real threat you know to the planet, unless we have a real mass movement around the world in terms of you know uh, people pushing back. I don't see them making a change in terms of renewable energies. I, I simply, I simply don't see that. Because the profit margin is just too great as far as they're concerned. They're not concerned about the, the fate of the planet or the fate of human beings, for that matter. So I don't think, um, I don't think that's much you can do aside from you know massive organization on a worldwide scale pushing back. Professor Moses, I can concur with uh, your points, Haki. I would add that it would take the defeat of imperialism worldwide, uh, you know, to bring about a change in order to save the planet. And uh, and I think that's why people who advocate for saving the environment, preserving the environment and preserving the earth must push for scientific socialism. That is the only economic system that could prevent uh, uh, the waste and excesses caused by capitalism from continuing to happen, and de- and thereby devastating the planet. Oh, that's that is that is a very good point. That you know that that is a very good point. That is a very good point because part and parcel in terms of how the, the exploitation export, exportation of capitalism. Uh, be it human beings or the planet or whatever you, is so much a part of the philosophy uh, behind capitalism that you're right. If we don't fundamentally discard or get rid of that, that philosophy, then you, we're pretty much locked in a situation in which there's no win for the planet and for human beings on the, on the planet. So you're absolutely correct. I think that uh, the, the push in terms of anti-imperialism, the push for socialism in terms of you know the, 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 the greater good for humanity, I think you're absolutely correct, Brother Anthony. It's a very, very good point. A very, very good point. You know, it's, it's a point that uh, you know, um, you know, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I talked a lot about it in the past. You know, but uh, you know, it, 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 it just seems that uh, despite making that point, it falls on deaf ears a lot of times. And so, and and and, and so, I sort of actually forgot about it. Uh, so now that you mentioned that, 
You're absolutely correct. And so uh, it's something that people need to something people especially need to to look into. Yeah. You know, Brother Moses, I can come to you in terms of just give me your um, opinion on where do you see the end game as it relates to the so-called so-called issue or the so-called narrative of impeaching Donald Trump. Is this just a disguise from other things and really more importantly going on, or do you realistically, and I just to also do all the panelists, do you realistically believe that there will be a, a tip of impeachment against Donald Trump? Uh, we just been hyped up just to be dis- be um to create to create what's the word for interference or a deception while other really important things are going on. What's your end game? How you see how this thing may play out, Brother Moses? Well, the thing is, the law is the law, and the Constitution is is written, and uh, he has violated the Constitution, and that's. That's clear. I mean, there's a smoking gun. He asked this this uh, prime minister to do him a favor, to do him a favor and investigate one of his opponents. And so that's clear. Uh, however, you know, to bring that home to the Republicans and the, and the, the followers of Trump, uh, it's, it's easier said than done. It becomes a political issue, and so I don't know if he'll actually know. get in peace, in peace or not. Uh, but I think it's worth the effort. Thank you. Other panelists, your views on this? Is this just a smoke screen, or is this just something you think really gonna play out? That will lead to impeachment. Um, I'm perfect. I think. I think a lot, there's a lot of division inside the ruling class over strategy and tactics right now, so I think it's a smoke screen. I think when the dust settles, I don't think uh, much is going to happen, but, but it has the effect of distracting people in the U.S. from other things that are going on in the world, such as the situation in Venezuela, Cuba, uh, you know, the indigenous people that are trying to uh, migrate from uh, Central America to the U.S. and uh, and what's happening in Africa. You know, with uh, you know, with uh, you know, uh, the wars and the economy, et cetera. So I think it, I think it is a distraction because um, I don't think I, I think the, the the ruling class is too fragmented. To, Fragmented to, uh, to to do to do anything uh, to get Trump out of office, and then if he, and and if they were to succeed, he would be replaced by Mike Pence. So I don't know whether uh, what, what whether at the end of the day that would improve things much, you know, for people in this society. Yeah, I don't I don't think I don't think impeachment is possible. Uh, I think the corruption is just too great. I think mean, one of the first things these politicians want to do is go to their wealthy benefactors and ask them, what do you think? Or their wealthy benefactors would tell them, listen, thumbs down on the impeachment thing. And when their wealthy benefactors tell them thumbs down, that means they're not going to vote for impeachment. So I think it's, it's near theater. I don't think anything's going to happen to this guy because clearly if something's going to happen, it happened a long time ago. When it comes to collusion, we talk about the Morgan Clause, when you talk about you know, you know, all of these criminal act things that he's engaged in, uh, he should have been gone a long, long time ago. 
So I'm not optimistic that he's going anywhere. So I think it's all part of a grand theater. So I don't think it's, there's nothing really behind it. Okay, panelists, for the last question for this segment, I'd like to get your response. About a week ago on NBC Network News, it was reported that one of the major airlines, I don't, I'm not quite sure it was, um, I can't remember if it was American Airlines or United, it was one of the airlines they stated was giving the people water that was any water that was uh, tainted. It wasn't fit to drink as well as coffee. So they were telling people that when they ride on the airlines, not to drink the water and drink the coffee. But the airlines knew this. What do y'all make of that? What could be the purpose and logic that airlines giving water they knew was not fit, coffee that they knew was not fit to drink, but they were still serving the people on the plane with it? And then they they, they publicized it on, on the network, telling people on the airlines it may not be safe to drink water or coffee. Where's the accountability in this stuff? There, there, is, there is no accountability. It's, it's a question in terms of profitability. So keep in mind that, you know, uh, the kind of work that, that needs to take place in terms of ensuring that the water is, is clean takes dollars and cents. Well, these, these planes are operating on, on a, you know, shoestring budgets, a lot of them. So, therefore, for them, you know, that's the difference between, you know, profitability and, and losing money. So the choices between losing money and profitability then the people just got to get sick. They drink the tainted water. I mean, just that's the way it is. And this is the fundamental philosophical problem that that human beings face in society because you fundamentally have a system that says that life has no value. The only thing that has value is money. And so when you have that kind of system, are you surprised that they will opt to, to, to take the route that's, that's, that's cheaper for the airline? So what, you get sick. So what if you die? You know what? So what? You know, they get their money, and that's what the game is all about. It's all about the money. And so, therefore, they don't care about the health of those passengers on the plane. It really doesn't matter. It's about the money. It's about the bottom line. So I'm not surprised at all, Brother Africa, in terms of this, this kind of thing. I mean, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's, so much, there's so many things going on. I mean, also, when you talk about the fact that you talk about air, aircraft, you know, to my, just from a safety point of view, in terms of the unwillingness of a lot of these aircraft, these companies to actually inspect their planes in a timely fashion, give, making excuses to justify, you know, flying these things, you know what? Well, food inspection. So it's all about the money, and and this is this. And, and, and until people understand that there's something fundamentally wrong with that philosophy, uh, we're all we're all potential victims. You know, of, of a system which says that you know our right to exist is no right at all. And so I think it's just come down to a simple dollars and cents. So they did what they had to do to maximize the profits. Well. So listen audience, you may be aware of that drinking water, coffee, and just eating curry on the airlines may not be to your best interest health-wise. Hear the word now. So on that note, panelists, we'd like to thank you for giving your perspective on what's going on in your world and the community. What we're going to do, we're going to take a station break. When we come back, we're going to speak on the theme, African oppression using education and economics. We'll be right back. You'll listen to Africa on the Move.
and who don't know who don't have any recourse but to take out predatory student loans. And it's an indictment of capitalism also because under socialism, education is considered a right, not a privilege for the few that can afford to pay for it. Brother Bobby, your thoughts on this article? I guess we tell you love Brother Bobby for right now. Go to you, Brother Hackey, your thoughts on this article. Yeah, you know, I you know, I let me let me just um summarize a little bit here. You know, I suspect that, you know, given uh the kind of institution this was, that a lot of those students probably were um working class working class uh students. So my guess is that her actions are predicated on the belief that these kids lack the necessary information you to make a sound judgment in terms of actually you know going to higher officials and making complaints. I suspect maybe that was her motivation in terms of doing what she did. But that aside, the mere fact, you know, that she didn't follow through on the court order, um, you know, uh to not do to not to uh um um to not to uh create a hardship for those for those young people suggests, you know, that uh she doesn't have much respect for the law. And so it's not surprising that in the orange uh, menace uh White House there are lots of people who have zero respect for law and, and, and processes. So I'm not surprised, you know, that she would actually do something like this because the bottom line is that it's all about, you know, getting get you know you know, getting those getting those resources, getting the money from those from those, from those students uh at any cost. So I'm not surprised at all, Brother Africa. It, it just seems to me that this is just part and parcel of, you know, how this White House operates. Uh, you know, it's lawless. I mean it it doesn't have any respect for, uh, you know, for, for, for people's rights. Uh, it does essentially what it wants to do. So the mere fact that she could thump her nose at the, uh, at the judge speaks in terms of her perception that perhaps she's got more power than she actually has. So I'm just hoping that Judge Kim will actually give her some time in jail. I certainly doubt it. But at, I'm certainly hoping that she would, but I certainly doubt it. But clearly she's thumping her nose at the judicial system. So, you know, regardless of what they said, she took her own path. So. I'm not surprised. Brother Moses, the kids were deceived, and it was part of her fraud. Now, I wonder if anybody went to jail behind this who ran these schools. Your response to this article, Brother Moses? All right. Uh, this, this education is a, is a right, it's not just a privilege. And, uh, and so, you know, this is a fundamental problem. Uh, but then, nevertheless, these people were taken in by these profit-driven schools that spring up and 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 uh, lure people in who have financial aid or loans or whatever, and uh, and take advantage of them, and then they go out of existence, obviously. And uh, so, this judge ruled in the, on their behalf, and uh, you know the problem is getting in the board. And uh, you know this is this is uh, I don't know I don't know if they don't have the, the political economical clout that that a more wealthier people have or what but, uh, getting this ruling enforced it seems to be a real problem uh, I don't I don't understand it uh, I 
seems like there will be some mechanism for getting repercussions and consequences for people who break the law. I'll just leave it there. Thank you. Yeah, I think how key you raised earlier in Panelist Young Way. But I read it, I wondering if those students represent what you would, what some people call uh, lower class status economically and why they chose to go at those students versus students who may come from a background or uh, high level of uh, 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 economics or high level income and high level of. Uh, High level uh, uh, background where the parents have some form of um, how you discipline. I just wonder in terms of when you look at the class status and make up students playing a role in terms of disbehavior. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Okay. It, I'm sure. Go ahead. No, I think it may have, and the reason I say that is because they uh, uh, they have they have student loan debt. Which means they probably did not have the money to pay for the for the college education on their own out of their own resources. So I'm assuming that these are probably either uh, uh, poor or or, or 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 working class students for the most part. You know that were that were the the victims of of this uh, of this failing to uh, to forgive the student on that. And it's really okay. unfair. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish your thoughts, Anthony. I thought you finished. My mistake. Finish yeah. your thoughts, Anthony. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's unfair because you know uh, because you could ruin people's lives by you know by by, by you know by, by affecting their ability to pay for housing, to even get employment, because if you uh, you know if you have um, if you have a, a, a bad a bad credit rating, it can be difficult to get employment. It can even be difficult to get housing in some cases. So this is a very serious problem, you know, uh, for the uh, for the people that did not have their loans forgiven. Hockey. Yes. That's a that's a very good point, Brother Anthony. Uh, you know, when it, you know, it, it's amazing the extent in which you know the system will penalize poor people. And so, if you have a, a bad credit rating, it means that you don't you not only not have access to housing, but you can't even get a job simply because your credit rating. Now, can someone please explain to me the relationship between the credit score and people's desire to work? I I, I fail to understand the relationship between the two, but nonetheless, they use it as a criteria in terms of denying people jobs. So the ruthlessness, you know, when we talk about this kind of class uh, schism, uh, this class hatred uh, in the society, I mean, DeVos pretty much epitomizes that kind of schism that exists in the society. So everything she does is, is, is geared toward the victimization of those who are, quote, unquote, perceived as weak or poor or marginalized. So given that reality, you know, when, when she talked about the school that uh, went under, you know, simply because, uh, apparently, you know, it was one of these fly-by, fly-by-night kind of institutions uh, in which it attempted to defraud these young people. Uh, clearly, she understood that the reality is that most people who are attracted to those schools are people, you know, who are desperate, you know, one, desperate for education, and secondly, people who find themselves, you know, in horrible conditions and trying to improve the conditions by elevating, you know, their skill, their skill set. 
So I think she understood that these these kids, by and large, by, these young people, by and large, were poor people, uh, working class folks. And uh, so I think that that sort of empowered her to go forward in terms of doing what she did, simply because even if they have bad a bad uh, credit rating, if they can't find work as a result of that bad credit rating, or can't um, or can't get a home, can't get an apartment because of bad credit rating, it doesn't bother her. It doesn't bother her because they represent the, the the bottom of the barrel anyways, and so therefore whatever happens to them is inconsequential. So this is the class dimension that we talk about. When we talk about someone like uh, Betsy DeVos. Uh, this woman does, has has no humanity in, in her whatsoever, and so unfortunately. You know, uh, these poor people are going to pay a price. So even if they resolve the situation, that's going to be part of their part of their permit record in terms of in terms of their credit. So, well, at least for another seven years. So, 11, another seven to ten years. So, unfortunately, you know, that's just the way it is. Until we fundamentally change, you know, this crazy capitalist system, and you get what you get, and uh, and that's just the way it goes. Bobby back, you got to Bobby back. Um, yeah, Bobby, I'm your here. response to the article? Is your response to the article? No, like um, in regards to the president being set forth by Bessie DeVos, we got to understand within the last 15 years or so, there have been a movement to this corporatization of education. So we got to understand Bessie DeVos is just a continuation of what previous presidential administrations have been able to happen ever since you've heard the buzzword charter school in terms of there's some reason that um, for some reason they, well, I want to say for some reason it's clear because we're talking about capitalism that they feel that anything that's going to be due to public good is inadequate, it's inferior, there's something wrong with it, it's to be demonized, and you have to pay the play. Because we got to understand, it's people like Bessie DeVos that enable that scandal where all of these top colleges were allowing celebrities and rich people, kids in that weren't qualified to be in the school, but just because you could pay, you gave them access to those tools to ensure um, a better well-being. And the thing that's with us is what you have come to realize is that with a lot of us, when we get opportunity to the higher education, we will take that and we will use that to help um, our people progress, and that's something they definitely don't want. So they're making it harder and harder to get access to those tools that can help us overcome our oppression. You know, I think also this is a reflection of, um, I, I, when I read this article, I wonder about the issue of the bureaucracy in terms of if you have made a law saying the students will not be held accountable to repay back those loans, while at the same time you still use the different governmental um apparatus like the IRS to take their tax money. There seems to be a disconnect between these agencies. Because if the law was in effect, how could they still use the institutions to do that? Which I know goes on all the time. So how could we avoid that in the future, panelists? Do you have any ideas? Can you see the students saying that, look, I was told that we don't have to pay these loans, and then they called the IRS. They said, well, your name is on my list, so therefore we took your money. And what recourse do they have? Uh, well, one thing, um, when you're dealing with intractable bureaucracies, it's important to keep records 
to hold on to all of the documentation that you get uh, from uh, from your collegiate institution, from the bank you got the loan from. On an individual level, it's important to document everything because uh, uh, because uh, when 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 you uh, when you try to fight uh, uh, fight uh, fight against the government agency. Uh, you know they want proof. They want uh, they want documentation. So um, it's important to get everything in writing and to hold on to your records as much as possible. The other thing too is the fact that uh, that there needs to be a greater uh, degree of organization inside our communities in order to protect our uh, you know our human rights. And an organization among our people. I think I think one of the one of the problems, Brother Africa, I think we talk about bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is created to resist change. So, in other words, so when you have a situation where those kids took out those loans, you know, automatically, you know, it's going to go to different facets of the uh, of the bureaucracy. Going to be aware that those loans were taken out. And so, therefore, it's very, very easy in terms of giving that bureaucracy doesn't communicate with one another that you have a situation where, uh, if, you know, one one set of bureaucracy, you know, proceeds, you know, with uh, with uh, you know, take you know, taking those those young people's money, with another bureaucracy may have been informed and they don't, and and, and they and, and they, uh, but they don't communicate in terms of clarity, precisely what's happening with those young people. But I think that's all part of design because the bottom line is it's all about the pursuit of the, of the money or, or the bottom line. And so, therefore, you want to take that money. You want the bureaucracy to have access to that money. So, therefore, it's convenient to have bureaucracy, you know, as a, as a, as a justification uh, to take the kids' money by simply saying that, well, you know what, we weren't informed. We simply did what our, what our mandates dictate we do, uh, particularly when we talk about the IRS in terms of taking the young people's money or, or you know, so – so I think that when we talk about bureaucracy, you know, part of that, part of the reason why this happened is because of bureaucracy, and the people who innovate bureaucracy understand that it serves a very powerful interest. You can do a lot of bad things on the bureaucracy, and that is what it's all about, as opposed to a streamlined system in which you know everybody on the same page in terms of, you know, how things how things should play out. But when you have bureaucracy, that's not the case. So the people in position of power often use bureaucracy to do horrible things. Because they understand that you know they can do bad things, you know, without necessarily you know having to face any kind of culpability. Well, let's hope that we can find some kind of way to eliminate these 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 I would call them international thieves. So on this point, we're gonna pause for this call. So when we come back, we want to ask a question: Was the University of Alabama racist in terms of firing? their vice provost. Was the University of Alabama racist in terms of fighting their provost? We discuss that and more when we come back from Africa on the moon. International Peace International Peace International Peace International Peace 
tell the truth. There's a campaign that was created by James Rucker. James Rucker was the individual. He was the head of the dean of students at the University of Alabama. And he also worked with, um, I think, with the students, students of fire department. And I read the statement right here. We would like to uh, ask the panelists to weigh in on this as it relates to the decision of firing um, Brother James Rucker. It said, I'm outraged that the University of Alabama has apparently forced out its dean of students after a website which links to white supremacists gained up a fake controversial controversy around Dr. Jamie Riley, a honest and truthful statement about racism by throwing Riley under the bus. The university is essentially telling its black students and employees to keep their mouth shut about racism. The university makes millions on the backs of black athletes that it doesn't pay. Paying every black person affiliated with the institution ought to be able to voice their experiences of racism. The University of Alabama needs to rehire Dr. Jamie Riley immediately and make clear it will stand up for the rights of black students, faculties, and employees. Now, what happened was one of the alt-right groups when they researched something that some statements he may have made years ago concerning the question of race and racism. Um, and I think two of the statements he made was quoted as being the American flag uh, emoji. Flag represents a, a, a systemic history of racism for my people. Police are a part of that system. It is that hard to see. It isn't that hard to see the correlation. Then he made another statement um, baffled about how the first thing white people say is that's not racist when they can't even experience racism. You have zero opinion. Now with those two statements based upon what he has stated about racism from his experiences in the past should qualify enough for the university to fire him after seven months on the job. Panelists, your response to the decision of the University of Alabama to fire this young man. Let's stop you, like to Jabari. Jabari, okay. go ahead. I'm going to say, let me set forth a precedent. Um, the author of A People's History of the United States, his name is escaping me at the moment for some reason. Um, he was a How professor. Thank you. Howard Zinn was a professor, and this is a yeah, precedent for things like this happening. He was a professor at Spelman University at HBCU, and he raised these kind of issues as well, which you can read more in detail about in his book, A People's History of the United States. And as a result of that, they said he was too radical at a historically black college or university, and they dismissed him. And you're talking about a Caucasian professor. And this was roughly, I'm thinking, 50s or 60s, um, roughly. Anyhow to guesstimate. But anyhow, and I just want to use as precedent as we look at what happened to this brother at the University of Alabama. Now, Brother Africa raised a very poignant point in terms of the millions upon millions that black athletes make in terms of having a good jump shot or especially as they've been the juggernaut out of college football year after year, they're always competing for a national championship. It's a football factory. As they say in roughly 
10, 15, 20 or so players in the NFL every year, they get a fresh crop of players that either were on the bench the previous year or come from some of the top high school programs in the country. So that definitely speaks to um, a question of power and how they wanted to just see him. He, they wanted him to feel like he was privileged just to be there, not because of what his position, just because they even allowed him to come there. Because as we know in regards to Alabama, that's one of those states where you want to talk about insidious policy. That's one of those states where, let's say I'm a rich Caucasian male that comes from the right family. I can get a low-level judgeship just having a high school diploma. And then as long as I take classes, I can advance and get a higher judgeship. And it's not that I have an adequate understanding of law. It's just because of a certain privilege I have. So yet again, we see this playing a factor in terms of how this brother was handled only seven months into the job compared to statements and even actions done by other people in terms of Alabama as an institution in regards to how they treat Africans. And they were able to go ahead and retire and collect a nice pension. So that's definitely a question in terms of um, what his ethnic makeup was. And we look at who runs the institution historically. That plays speaks volumes as well. Okay. Brother Moses, your response? Well, I'm waiting well, for Brother Moses. It, it seems okay, that, Moses. Uh, seems that, you know, these, these, Southern Dixiecrat universities, uh, you know, who who like to exploit black people, uh, is doing this thing again uh, uh, by suppressing and repressing our expression of of our reality as an experience here in the the U.S. of A. And um, so, you know, this is not that unusual. Uh, 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 we hope that we would be progressing, but unfortunately, this doesn't seem to be the case. Thank you, Brother Anthony. I don't understand what is the controversial statement that he made as being racist, and two, what is the implication if people continue to go back in your past and pull stuff up? How you see that playing out in the future? for African in the field of academics if they get away with him doing that? Uh, well, I would say the uh, the job security of no African is safe. If they can actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, dig into your past like that and pull up statements uh, that were made. And, and these two statements, if those are typical of what he made, are 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 actually uh, are actually highly accurate, uh, you know, in terms of um, you know. But the thing about but uh, but the thing we're in the time period where any criticism of U.S. policy is frowned upon, especially by you know uh, uh, you, you know the, the the European ruling class. And um, and uh, let's see, and uh, and the University of Alabama, rather than defending the, the, the rights and academic freedom of the African uh, uh, employees, staff, and uh, students and faculty, uh, seem to be more interested in pr- protecting their image 
among among the, uh, the, the 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 European benefactors and their alumni, which is probably mostly European for the uh, you know for the most part, and uh, this uh, you know uh, shows um, very clearly that uh that 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 for for all the advances that we thought we made this is still very much a racist society and only our vigilance and continued organization will put an end to it but haki your response well i think you know his I think it, the mistake he made was he was just uh, too matter of fact. Uh, one of the things when you talk about the injustice of racism in a permeated society, it must be done in a way which is delicate. Uh, you know, it has to be palatable to uh, those positions of power. So when he talk about equating uh, the American flag uh, to systematic racism or post brutality to systematic racism, then that's a bit too much for a lot of these conservative white folks to take. And so in their mind, you know, he's a radical. And so what do you do with radicals? Well, you discard radicals. Uh, so clearly the question in terms of academic freedoms is not a concern as far as the, uh, the leadership of University of Alabama is concerned about. But, it, but again, we can't underscore enough the history of Alabama. So we understand in terms of insensitivity, uh, it's part and parcel of what Alabama is all about. So, you know, we, we can't discard that history. So I'm not surprised that they would use this old, this old, this old information to go after him. But after all, I mean, here it is, you've got this African, you know, uh, in academia, working in academia. And one thing they want to believe, at least the ruling class wants to believe, is that, uh, you know, these, these individuals who work in academia are, you know, good boys and girls. That they don't do anything in terms of questioning the, the powers that be. So the moment they question the powers that be, then they cease to be good boys and girls, and they become radicals. So nobody's surprised that uh, they, would, they, would, they would fire him simply because he made a statement which is historically accurate. Uh, in regard to the second statement, when he talks about the fact, you know, that um, uh, um, when he talks about the fact that, uh, you know, when people define, you know, what is what is racism, uh, you know, often, you know, you, you have particularly liberal whites who weigh in on, you know, what their perception in terms of racism. And the question ever becomes, what, what are you, who are you? Who are you to weigh in on racism? You can tell me what what racism is, I've been dealing with it all my life, but you know better than I what racism is. So there's a certain kind of arrogance that exists in the liberal mind which says that, you know, we as white folks, we can determine for you what is racism. So if this guy says something's racist and we're not, and, and as a white, white liberal, I tell you, he said not racist, I'm supposed to conclude that what the white liberal is saying is correct, that my, that my own history, that my own and perceptions are invalid simply because some white liberal tells me that uh, I must believe that something wasn't racist. So clearly we got this, this insanity that exists in terms of in terms of, you know, uh in terms of the uh the various players you know in society. So I think that they for for lack of a better term, they simply saw them as radicals and so therefore they understand too much, they had to go. He had to go. So I think it's just part and parcel in terms of, you know, you know, uh the the, 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 the racist white mindset in terms of those African people who are conscious, uh conscientious. Uh, if you're conscientious, please don't let them know that you're conscientious. Because once they know that you're conscientious, it's a question of time before you're out the door. So I think that is uh, pretty much the lesson they want us to learn, uh, you know, from uh, from this article. 
concur with that observation I think is correct they're saying that if you want that if you want a position at the University of Alabama then you gotta you gotta keep your mouth shut about racism and uh, and uh, you know and the thing about and the thing about it though um, you know they they make millions of the exploitation of African labor not to mention the 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 money they get from uh from 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 the tax revenue generated from Africans that live in Alabama. So uh, you know, it's clearly, you know, an unjust, but the only way to do that is to organize and uh, again and um you know and uh you, you know uh you know form your own institution. And um, you know, and that takes uh political organization. And once we get that, then then, then we'll be able to uh you, you know, to, to speak uh you, you know, truth in the manner in which we see fit. And what else for respond to that? Is this a message to silence Africans for speaking on issues that may be Important to them and issues that affect them racially. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think, but I think, you know, brother Africa, I think it's, I think it's always been that way. I think that uh, you know, when you, when you, as an African person, you speak about racism, you know, forthrightly. I think one of the things is very intimidating for a lot of white folks because a lot of white folks want to believe in the fact that we, we don't have any historical knowledge, some historical understanding. In terms of the male treatment of uh, important treatment of our people, and so when you express that you do have a, a, fundam- a very strong understanding in terms of the male treatment of your people, it doesn't sit well with a lot of white folks, and not just white conservatives. I'm talking about white liberals as well. So I think that for him to underscore the fact that you know, as an as a educated person, you know, you know, in academia, for him to be intimately aware in terms of the atrocities inflicted upon African people, but not only that. But understand that you got a system in place that inflicts these historical wrongs on our people. That I think for a lot of white folks, that's a bit too much. You know, he's got to go because number one, you know, uh, you know, for them, you know, when you talk about in terms of the respectability that goes on in the position, part of that respectability for white folks is that that African person must be a good boy or a good girl uh, to to speak forthrightly about issues of race. Well, you, you 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 violated that sanctity. I mean, you're no longer a book boy or girl. You 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 now you become radical, and so then so therefore, you know uh, their response is going to be you know uh, uh, quite swift. So I think the historical has always been the case. I think it's going to continue to be the case. Uh, I think we can't allow that to deter us from speaking truth to power. Uh, you know, um, you know, but again, you know, uh, because this was academia, and this was a university, one of the things you would think that is so-called thinking people, you would say that, listen, 
what he said is fundamentally sound. He didn't say anything was that was erroneous. He didn't say anything that was that was hostile. He simply expressed the reality that when we talk about the evolution of the American flag, that uh, you know, you know, oh, you know, it, it, it epitomizes the kind of brutality, the kind of slavery uh, that uh, that handed out to our people. So often people talk about the Confederate flag in terms of the oppression, but nobody wants to talk about the American flag in terms of oppression. So therefore, for him, for him to talk about the American flag in the, in the, in, in the Confederate with oppression, I think was just too much for, those, for a lot of those sort of white folks. And so therefore, I think, as Brother Anthony said, I think it's important for them to convey, you know, to the, the benefactors, the wealthy benefactors, that you know, we're, all on this, we're all good old boys here, and uh, we're, going to, we're going to squash, you know, any... Any type of uh, any kind of thought, uh, any type of um, uh, perception, or any type of wording that suggests, you know, that uh, that the U.S. is anything less than perfect. So I think the mere fact that he disclosed the fact that the U.S. isn't perfect, I think for a lot of those folks, was just a bit too much. So that's just the way it is. You know, panelists, I wonder what was the faculty response in general on the campus, in particular. What was the African response in terms of either supporting him or not supporting him as relates to his firing? You think most of the faculty were silenced, or you think there might have been some support, some basis to um, try to figure a way out to either get him back or keep him from being fired? Which I think the faculty response has been or was. I'm not. I'm not sure, but I I get the sense that because of uh, the relative insecurity most Africans have regarding their jobs, that they probably they probably uh, remain silent or were very quiet about uh, about the brothers' uh, dismissal as a dean of students. And um, you know it's unfortunate, but um, but you know, but uh, you know, uh, just for uh, uh, for for Africans in the U.S., there there there's no such thing as job security. You know, there really isn't. Uh, we like to hope that there is, you know, because otherwise we we would probably go crazy if we didn't think that. But in the back of my mind, we got to understand. That uh, that 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 for Africans, uh, no job is really safe. Yeah, if I was to surmise, I would I would say probably uh, I would I would agree. Uh, I don't think that um, the the African faculty was um, particularly interested in terms of articulating you know, discontent with decision made by by the by the, uh, by the administration at the University of Alabama. I think in addition to just um, in terms of keeping a job, you know, I think also the question in terms of um, conditioning, I think to, to a large extent, that if you're conditioned to believe that the job defines who you are as a human being and to lose it is like losing power of yourself, you're less likely to challenge the, the status quo. So I think for a lot of people, it's more, they're more comfortable in terms of just, you know, biting their tongue, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and going along, you know, with the status quo. So I don't, but I, I I would hope that you know in terms of you know the students, I would hope that the students would at very least they would get a win in terms of what was going on, and they were organized in terms of bringing you know forcing the administration to bring him back. They had the power to do that. As a matter of fact, one of the things we did many years back, and they tried to get rid of a 
African history professor at the university I was at, and uh, we organized to get him back. Uh, we, you know, we did what we had to do in terms of making sure he get back, you know. But uh, you know, so it's possible, um, you know, um, you know. But it, but you know, I, I, but I don't have any, 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 any. I don't have any comp, any, 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 any um, belief. I don't have a belief that uh, the root, the uh, faculty, the African faculty, is going to. Uh, you know, step out of line. I'm I'm not convinced that they would. Okay, panel, that's what we're going to do. We're going to this quick station break, and when we come back, we want y'all to give y'all closing thoughts for tonight. We've been speaking on the theme tonight, African oppression, using education and economics. We'll be right back. You're one black man who went to a good essentially white high school in the city of New York. That's you right. obviously had had a good education. That's a good many of the people who work with you here in SNCC can say the same thing. And we're saying that... And you're a black man who came from a New York ghetto. And we're saying that there's a system that allows for one or two black people to get out. And that that's the rationale for keeping other black people down. And it has nothing to do with the unwillingness or inability of the Negro to help himself and to work hard. That's the rationale, that the reason why black people aren't this is because they're lazy, unambitious, stupid, have rhythm, and they eat watermelon. You call on the black man to refuse to respond to his draft call. That's correct. And we will continue to do so while there's breath in our bodies. Do you really believe that the military policies of the United States are designed to exterminate the black man, as you've said? I most certainly do. I look at the recent statement by Racist McNamara, who says that 30% of the people that are going to be drafted now under his new system are going to be black people, and that's nothing more than black urban removal. The white liberal who supported civil rights for so long with time and effort and money, what is your feeling about him? Well, I think that there's no reason why they should stop supporting the movement now. I certainly feel that if they're genuinely interested in black people, and since black people have charted a course, they believe in that program, they will continue to give to it. They need more white people to civilize whites. They need them to civilize the savages in Cicero who throw rocks and bricks at a peaceful and lovable black man like Dr. Martin Luther King, who would not even hurt a fly. Well, that's very important, because our uncles and our fathers and our older brothers died in World War I fighting Nazism to protect the Poles, and those same Poles turn around and throw rocks and bricks at us after we died to save their lives. And people talk about we are savages. Mr. Carmichael, if you had the chance to stand up in front of the white community and say anything you desired, say to him, understand me, white man, what would you say? I would say, understand yourself, white man, that the white man's burden should not have been preached in Africa, but it should have been preached among you that you need now to civilize yourself. You have moved to destroy and disrupt. You have taken people away. You have broken down their systems and you have called all that civilization. And we who have suffered at this are now saying to you, you are the killers of the dreams. 
You are the savages. Yes, it is you who have always been uncivilized. Civilize yourself. We welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. You just listened to the clipping back interview by Kwame Ture back in the early 60s. We are back with our panelists. They're going to give us their final thought. But panelists, before you give your final thoughts, I'd just like to get a, a, a response to what you just heard from this interview. Back back with Mike Wallace and Kwame Ture. Stop you, Brother Moses. While I wait for Mother, Brother Moses, let's go to you, Brother Anthony, your final thoughts. A response to that little clipping you just heard about Brother Kwame Ture. Uh, I think I think Kwame Ture's uh, assertion was very correct. Europeans do need to civilize themselves. Uh, they go around the world call, uh, calling themselves trying to civilize other people. They really need to civilize themselves. They have shown themselves to be the greatest perpetrators of violence in the world. On that note, uh, let's see. I, my final thought for this evening is that we need to understand the world in which we live, study, and get organized. And and if and if so inclined, join the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party GC. You can learn more about our organization by visiting our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org or calling us at 202-246-4896. Thanks. Thank you, Brother Today's contribution. Brother Moses, your response to that last clipping and your final thoughts for tonight. Yes, um... I thought Brother Kwame Ture was on point. I, um, you know, we've been victims of this this uh, white supremacist uh, order uh, coming out of Europe and uh, and then the the New World, so so, so called, um, which enslaved us. And so, you know, there's definitely uh, a problem there. And which needs to be addressed. I I enjoyed the show, and uh, my 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 phone kept going in and out. I don't know if it's my phone or or was something else technical, but uh, anyway, I enjoyed the show. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. Brother Hackey, your response to this last clipping, and your final thoughts for tonight. Yeah, I, I think Kwame was absolutely on point. I, one of the things is that clearly when you look at, when you um, critique uh, the evolution of the West, it's not a pretty one. And it's not to say that other cultures haven't engaged in savagery. Of course they have. But the extent, uh, the magnitude of the savagery is clearly the West are far superior when it comes to destructiveness, when it comes to genocide, when it comes to fomenting uh, chaos. The West is the best, and there's no question about that. And that's not a big of a statement, but it's born by history. So Kwame Ture was absolutely correct. Uh, the second thing, Brother Africa, uh, African Awareness Association, we're doing a solidarity tour to Cuba. 
The trip takes place October 31st, 2006. And for more information, please call us, 804-549-7492, or area code 202-714-9435, or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, and number two at gmail.com. And secondly, uh, just to reiterate, uh, Pan first we're doing this first Pan African International Festival. This takes place October 27th. For more information, give us a call 804-549-7492 or area code 202-749435 or email us African Awareness Association, number two, at gmail.com. And my final statement, Brother Africa, is, is always, you know, it's important that we understand the nature of the beast. And all of us understanding nature of the beast, uh, you know, we have to build institutions in terms of clarifying exactly what it is that, uh, that, that that's problematic for the community. Without the proper understanding of what's problematic for the community, there could be no resolution. So we have to get busy, you know, we have to do uh, what we have to do in terms of clarity. And I encourage people to build institutions. And having said that, we have a good night. I'd like to thank you, Brother Hackey, for your for your contribution to today's program, and all our panelists, as well as our listening audience, and our continued support. We'd like to remind you for those who want to support Dr. J.B. Riley at the University of Alabama, please go inside the petition drive. You can find it on Color of Change. Color of Change. They have a petition drive, and they watch action. The people to sign it to support this brother to get his job back at the University of Alabama. In closing, we'd like to just remind you that remember that without information, you cannot think, while organization cannot think clearly, we encourage you to join the organization that is fighting to help liberate your people and all of humanity. This show, Africa on the Move, is, about weekly, is a weekly show and come out in the banner of the African Awareness Association. You can send your support to African Awareness Association, P.O. Box, 4433, Richmond, Virginia, 23220. And like always, the more resources we have, the more creative we can be to be better, to bring you better information and, be, and, and to become more informed in terms of what's going on in our world and to our people. We'd like to say, just remember, always, you should subscribe to go forever, backwards, double. We thank you for watching. We thank you for listening to Africa on the Moon. And understand that history, we want to make sure we don't repeat the errors, and we don't want you to continue to be a Buffalo soldier. We'll see you Sunday, same time, same station. And again, let's grab to go forward, ever, backwards, never. This has been Africa on the Move.
you come from Clarendon, and if you come from Portland, and if you come from Westmoreland, you're an African. So don't care where you come from, as long as you're a black man, you're an African. No mind your nationality, I've got the identity of an African. Cause if you come from Trinidad, and if you come from Nassau, and if you come from Cuba, you're an African. So don't you where you come from.
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will Yeah. 
mutual respect. Our nation at its best feeds the hungry. Our nation at its worst, at its worst, our nation will have partnership with South Africa. Free, 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 free. Yeah, Botswana, so let us speak about the motherland.